Welcome to episode 135 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 19th of July, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello. Will. Hello. And Chris. Hello. Chris, who the hell are you? I just opened up Mumble and I just hit connect and I was here and I thought, oh, let's, let's hang out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people may recognize Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting, shows such as Linux Unplugged and Linux Action News, among others. Uh, you used to be my boss, of course, but uh, I suppose you kind of still are in a way. <laughs> Only uh, on Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the reason I asked you to join us, Chris, is that we are talking about SyncThing today in our first impressions. That came up from the Wheel of Meh last time. And you have got a lot of experience with it. And there's also another topic later that I wanted to talk to you about. So let's talk about SyncThing. Uh, who actually tried this then? Very marginally. Yeah, same. Uh, I, I gave it a go, but um, didn't get very far. I didn't give it a go, but I did run it for years on my NAS, so I didn't feel like I needed to. Yeah. I had tried this before, and I tried it again briefly, and I found it to be very easy to set up. I just got it from the Ubuntu repos, ran it, it opened up the web browser, I configured it, I did the same thing on another machine. I installed an app from FDroid, called SyncThing Fork, I think, got it all working and thought, well, there's not that much to say about it, is there? Yeah, I actually thought that was far more complicated than setting up Nextcloud, to be quite honest, because it's trying to be smarter or rather trying to get past things like NAT and various network issues because it's using the sort of third party or, well, they're not third party, it's the SyncThing themselves servers in the middle. So I don't know, I was a bit uneasy about that, to be honest, which may be stupid, but I didn't like the fact that it was going out through SyncThing.com servers to link up the two machines, even though they're on the same network. Maybe they weren't, but I could see that that's where they were handshaking to. It's using a similar technology to the way the BitTorrent discovery network works, the way it can find each other. And that gave me a little bit of pause at first, too. And there is some customization you can do there, but I don't think it's silly at all, Phelan. If you're coming from Dropbox or Nextcloud, it's like a it's a totally different way of setting up file syncing. And the thing is, I, I successfully use Nextcloud from my file syncing. Like, I don't have massive files I'm trying to share about, but I mean, I even use things like a, a simple text file with the timestamp of where I want my podcatcher to, like, purge files older than. And I use Nextcloud to do that and a simple web app that's up on my server. And like I do do that every day or whatever. And, you know, I've never had trouble that people have had. I've had trouble with Dropbox. That first time I tried that, it wiped out a whole lot of stuff. And I just went, well, see you later. I know a lot of people complain about Nextcloud syncing. And I don't have that issue. So for me, sync thing doesn't really do anything. Anything extra anyway. We used to um, do all the Linux voice stuff on Nextcloud. And it needed quite a beefy server to be able to work, maybe with the size of the files that we were using. Um, when I did use SyncThing, I used it on a really low-power ARM NAS. It's probably 10 or 12 years. Then I ran it for like five or six years, just syncing files from my desktop. And I couldn't run Nextcloud on that NAS. It didn't have enough RAM. So SyncThing did slot into having a reliable kind of low-resource syncing data syncing thing without having Nextcloud. Well, that's fair, yeah. I mean, I, I use all the other bits of Nextcloud as my not using Google sort of setup, so I needed those anyway, and if I was going to do everything separate, then it would be a real pain, whereas Nextcloud's got the lot, so... Right. You're probably the perfect Nextcloud user for syncing, and I don't think SyncThing would be a good solution. I also needed a solution for a low-power device like a Raspberry Pi, and SyncThing, to me, almost feels like not having a server. I mean, obviously, there's a server component to it, but it 
It feels just more like my file systems are syncing on their own, and there's just a web UI I go to to manage that. There is no web UI to download individual files like Nextcloud has or Dropbox, and there's no just client that you just install on a remote machine and have it start pulling down files. You have to install sync thing and configure it and connect it to another server. But if you're looking for something just to move data in the on the back end all the time, transparently, it really nails that job. I struggled to find much use for it because there was no iPhone app, and so I couldn't use it to replace, for example, Google Photos syncing photos off my phone onto my computer. And so I installed it on two Linux boxes, and then I was able to sync files between them. But I already had rsync set up for that. If I want to move an individual file, I would use um, like SCP or something. So I really struggled to find much of a use for it. And I don't think that is that uncommon. I think that people wanting to keep a lot of files in sync across machines is actually quite a small use case. Obviously, you guys do it because you've got podcasts and documents that you're working on that you want to work on as a group. But I think most people just want to back up photos. And I think that most people want to install an app on their phone. But I don't have an Android phone to try it on. So I'm interested to know if the Android app works very well. It worked on the file I put in there. (laughs) Yeah, same. It worked on the various files that I'd put in there. It was just a quick test that I had. And yeah, it seemed to work absolutely fine. The thing that didn't seem to work for me was punching through the NAT, though, because over the LAN, it was fine. And you've got that option to either have it attempt to get through NAT or not. I left that on so it would try. But after about, I don't know, five minutes, I gave up on that. And I told you this, Chris, uh, off air, and you said to me that you have to wait about an hour usually. Is that right? Yeah, if you have really tricky NAT, it will sometimes take an extra long time to sort itself out. I think that's kind of one of the disadvantages of SyncThing is if you just restart the service even, you kind of restart the clock on that wait game. Or if you make a modification to the share and it has to sort of re-index and figure itself out, it resets that discovery clock again. It can be kind of one of the slower things about it because if you want something to start syncing immediately and it has to do that NAT dance, <laughs> you're going to be waiting. And I'm on a I'm on an LTE crazy double NAT setup. And so I've, I've, I have had it struggle, but it does almost always connect. And in my use case there, right, I'm I'm using it to move large files between two locations in a way that, actually multiple locations, three locations, in a way that just sort of makes sure I have certain data sets everywhere I want to be. And that's that's everything from the Audible files that I've backed up to my NAS, so that way I have my books with me, to some media content and VMs that if I create a VM at the studio, I want it available at home as well. And I don't really need to tie that to a cloud service that makes me pay for storage. I have enough disk on both ends, and I just want it. I want a copy on both systems. And so that's where SyncThing is great, because I don't have to fill up a NextCloud server with a bunch of, I mean, it's like it's like 65 gigs of audiobooks. I don't want to just put that on NextCloud. That's just too much, right? But I want it on both my hard drives. Yeah, I guess with, with NextCloud, uh, I use a similar type of thing. It's for like tech PDFs, you know, O'Reilly and the like, and... I think I have about 12 gigs of those and I find it really useful to not have them on my phone because I think it's, I'm not sure what the OnePlus 3T even has full. I think it's at 64, maybe 32. I can't remember. And I don't use that all up on a whole lot of PDFs that I don't need. So being able to go in and cherry pick in the, the next cloud client and say, oh yeah, I just want that one now. Uh, I know I'm going on site and that'll be useful. 
and then it have that pulled down without having to have the lot. But I definitely love the fact that with Nextcloud, I've got my f- uh, phone's pictures backed up, which by the looks of it, there were some cool things in the web config of sync thing itself. Like it is a very nice sort of web interface where you can choose the types of shares, you know, as a send only, receive only, or two way and stuff like that. So that, that was quite cool. I just don't think it suits me. Yeah. I find a use case for both of them, really. I have Nextcloud to like share files with Joe and you know the and and Drew for editing, and then I use SyncThing for some of the larger data sets just between locations. Yeah, and you can select which directories you want to share, and like you say, either receive only, send only, or both. And it's very easy to set up a new device, especially if it's on the LAN, because it just automatically finds it. You go to add a device, and it's just right there suggested to you. Hey, do you want to add this one? And if it's not suggested, then you can create a QR code easily. It just seems to have thought of everything. Like It seems to be very mature software at this point. I've been using it on and off for a very long time. I've used it consistently every day for, for just two years. I just checked my install date before we started to record, and it, I just hit the two-year mark. But it took me about three passes because every time I, I came at it, I, I was also thinking about it in the terms of Nextcloud and Dropbox, and I just didn't see how SyncThing did fit for me either. But as I took another pass at it later, like I got really upset with Dropbox, <laughs> and so I rage quit. And so I moved over to SyncThing for a lot of things. And it in like the third pass, sort of like learning to love the Plasma desktop, it took me three or four passes. But by the third or fourth pass, it clicked, and, and I got it. And it's it's been rock solid, and I've used it two years straight, and I love it. Some of us just know the right thing at the right at the start, though, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I need to play with it a bit more to see if it's going to be right for me, because I would like to replace Google Photos with the local backup of my photos, but uh, I need to do a bit more testing before I put it into production, I think. But we need to decide what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks then. So let's go to the Wheel of Meh and click it. It's spinning around now. Oh, it's very exciting. Lots of pretty colors. What have we got? Bodhi Linux, which is uh, Ubuntu with Enlightenment. Yay. Well, it was suggested by a listener, so we'll see. We might not have that much to say about it, but we'll see anyway. So we'll be trying out Bodhi Linux. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. makes it all possible. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 a month or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Let's do some feedback then. Stephen and an anonymous person recommended SimpleScan, because I'd been talking about my scanning woes. Now, 
let me just try and clear this up. The problem wasn't that I didn't know how to do it on Linux. It was just that I had the driver for Windows. Well, funnily enough, I had something to scan. So I had to do the dance of copying this firmware file. It turns out it's 14 kilobytes. <laughs> That's what stands between me and scanning on Linux. And you just have to put it in a certain directory. I can't remember what it is now. And I used Simple Scan, scanned to a PDF, worked absolutely brilliantly. So yes, I'm aware of Simple Scan. I've used it before. And I've ended up on Linux now because it's easier to piss about copying that file than it is to use Windows. So that's a success story, I think. We've got a message from James. I was surprised that in your review of Silverblue, you didn't address what I think is the elephant in the room, which is the question of whether this represents the next era of Linux on the desktop, or at least on workstations. OS Tree allows for non-disruptive, non-destructive OS updates that allow users to seamlessly, and without their knowledge or direct input, use an old image if the new one was balked somehow. And Chrome OS already uses this uh, quite successfully in the consumer retail space. You could see an IT department deploying Silverblue or something like the secret <laughs> on something like the secretary's computer. It would update without fuss. Do we still have secretaries? <laughs> it would update without fuss, and you could hook it up to a company-hosted flatpak repo with pre-approved apps, <laughs> so they wouldn't need to bother you about installing something they want, like Tetris. I know Will said a key component of the Linux experience is getting to fiddle under the hood, but do the next million Linux desktop users want to do that, or do they want a more managed? trouble-free experience with system maintenance similar to what they're getting on Chrome OS? This is a good question, but I don't think that we want it, do we? But that, that next million users, maybe something like OS Tree is the answer. Yeah, okay, if you're a massive organization and you're using something like the Linux Tin Client Project, which is similar to this and the fact that you roll out a golden image that everybody boots off of, then... Yeah, maybe. But I mean, that is not what I'd be striving for as a interesting project. I mean, it's very practical, but that's not how you get new people testing stuff out. Because I mean, if everybody's using Chromebooks or Android phones or whatever, they're not getting to play with the low end stuff. And we just end up with a very stagnant, I don't know, education of computers. It's really the promise of the Bulletproof workstation, though, isn't it? With the, with the OS tree in silver blue, the idea that you could have a system like in a recording studio or in some sort of naval base or whatever that is bulletproof. And if a update goes sideways or malware gets in there, you have a total clean install you can boot from. Uh, I like that idea. It does bring a lot of restrictions to how you install software. So I don't know if any of us would ever want that kind of setup. But I was also thinking in light of the Steam Deck, you could see why Valve might want to do something like this on a Steam Deck. You could ship Arch, but if you used OS Tree to manage the updates, you could pretty safely guarantee that Arch installation. So you could bring a level of stability to Arch that I don't think you've ever seen before. I don't think that's what they're going to do, but that's another use case is those types of embedded devices. I think that's a really good example and, and a much better use case than a desktop PC in somebody's office that maybe a bad update's got applied and it's a bit broken. I think the the consumer device that's in the field without any option for remote hands or a remote network connection is a much, much better use case for this. I mean, how, how many times have you borked your install? I mean, I can say in the last 10 years, almost none. If it's not a hardware failure, I have I've never got to the point where I've installed a package and broken everything horribly, because I'm not 
arsing about installing things in a stupid way every time. <laughs> and I don't mean to sound harsh, but like if you're using your machine for work, I think you pretty much leave it for doing work. And unless your distro absolutely makes a mess of it, you should be fine. Right. I have had a couple of updates break OBS or Jack Audio, you know, once every couple of years. And that has sucked, but it has been solvable. We didn't have to throw out the whole install. But that's OBS, which is not really a distro package. It's more of a, oh, back then was probably a newer sort of package where, and Jack, I, I don't know, is Jack even still stable yet? I don't know. I think there's a risk with updates of, uh, like, let's say a power cut happening halfway through the update, or somebody kicks the plug out because they've got to plug the Hoover in halfway through an update, and then it's hosed. But in those situations, you're very likely to have an on-site IT guy to come around and, you know, fix it for you. Whereas the consumer device, I think that comes a, a different uh, expectation on the end user that they won't have the ability or interest in dropping down to a terminal and unfucking their file system. They just want it to work. And in those cases, great. I think in the office environment, like in, in this example, I don't think there's really a need for it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. So something that's been going around in my head for quite a while now is that the FOSS community, specifically desktop Linux and that end of the FOSS community, seems to be in this almost unique position of vulnerability to being taken advantage of by people and companies and actors, let's say, who have nefarious goals to just take advantage of them, whether that's financially or other ways. And that's because I feel that in order to use desktop Linux, you kind of have to have this inherent optimism, this inherent sort of way of accepting that things might be a bit shit, but they'll get better and you give it the benefit of the doubt because it's free as in freedom and it's all about ideology. And it seems like Linux users will put up with a lot more shit than other communities will, like the Mac community or Windows community or Android community. You know what I'll add, Joe, because you and I have talked about this before, is you're not talking about software quality per se. You're not saying Linux users will live with bad software because they're optimists. You're really talking more about people taking advantage of that optimism. You're, you're really talking more about individual actors. You might label them as grifters. 
And you're not really saying like, oh, we'll put up with crap software. You're saying we'll put up with things for a long time and we'll give people the benefit of the doubt for a really long time because we're optimistic that they're, they're doing the right thing. They have their best intentions. Yeah, well, I think a bit of both, to be honest. I think sometimes we do put up with shit software, but not as often. Okay. Because there's so much choice <laughs> these days. Fair enough. But now we're not going to name any names or, of companies or individuals for various reasons that should be obvious. But there are some that are just quite clearly taking advantage of, of people. Some people and companies do it more subtly, but some people just do it so obviously that I, I just don't understand how they get away with it. And this is the only explanation I can come up with. Is It's this inherent optimism that lets people get away with it. The five of us, maybe with the ex- exception of Chris, optimism isn't the first word I'd use to describe us. <laughs> how dare you, sir? But are we normal in the desktop Linux world? I don't know if anybody's normal. I, I mean, I know that's a rubbish answer, but I just don't know if it's any different to any other community of people, really. Um, I see people getting taken advantage of everywhere. And I think, I mean, if we're talking about the ability to actually do something about it when somebody takes advantage of a community, there are very few people who can actually do it, either have the skills to be able to do it or the time to do it. So that's another reason why we're kind of forced to put up with certain situations for far too long because there's no kind of commercial incentive to change it. Um, instead, you're relying on free time a lot of the time and, 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 and skilled people to come in and change things. I actually think it might be slightly worse in the free software community specifically because I think it's pretty easy for the right kind of person to come in and identify exactly what buttons to push, what phrases to say how to use the word community to manipulate people. I think that's more pervasive in the free software community, but ultimately I think it's also much more damaging than say it might be in a gaming community because there's limited resources and funding. And so you have some folks who are sucking up funding, selling a dream that they're never going to deliver on, which diverts time, attention, and money away from legitimate projects that maybe don't get as much fame because they don't have the flashy narrative and personality because cult of personality is another aspect of this. And so they projects that we love that we use every day don't get any attention, funding or love. And then these grifter projects that are just a money sink have all of the social media fame. And so I think it's more pervasive and potentially more damaging in our community. That could also be because these projects have to be open source for somebody to bootstrap something like this. or For somebody to bootstrap a nefarious project, it's much easier to make it based on an open source project or say it's going to be open source because then you don't have to deliver or if you don't deliver, you're going to promise that everyone will have access to it. And I think that's a bit of an anthropic principle in that open source is now big enough that anybody can say this or that or the other about open source. And I, I, I still don't think it necessarily represents something intrinsic about the free software community. I don't necessarily know if it means there's something intrinsically wrong with the people. I think what it is, it's become large enough now that people can easily pick up on what it is you need to say and do to to get those people to be motivated. Uh, I think we've seen companies come in or groups that come in that want to promise hardware or software, and they know exactly what to say and how to position their company, but they just never quite deliver, or they don't deliver what they say they will, or they just disappear. And they, because, because that language that they can manipulate, I, I just don't, I don't see it happening uh, to, to, to say Mac users, for example. I just don't, you don't see that kind of thing happening. But you see it with antivirus software on Windows and you've seen that for 20 years or more. Um, and to me, that's the same thing. 
surely you see with Apple telling you you're holding it wrong all the time. (laughs) There's always a hope. I think that is maybe one thing that we're possibly guilty of is having hope that somebody will bring out a product that sees the same sort of ideals that we have where you don't want to constrain users, you want people to be free. And that is a nice thing to take advantage of because people try to assume that you're coming from a good intent unless they're miserable bastards like you, Joe. Well, that's what it is, though. But it is happening. It really is happening. Oh, yeah. And I I don't doubt it, but I just... I think that's why it's happening as well. I mean, it'd be a shame to lose that because yeah. it's kind of one of the driving principles of the way right. FOSS works is the fact that here, I do this tiny bit and I give it and you do your tiny bit and we all work together. And if we get so hard nosed that we see everybody as, a, oh, you bastard, are you here? Just take my source code. We don't have that community anymore and we never get anywhere with our stuff. I mean, yeah, I don't think for hardware we're ever going to do too well there because it's just, so much investment required. Right, but it would be a shame to lose it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, totally. Is it a sort of innocence that we're talking about almost? I don't think it's innocence. I mean, I think people realize the amount of work that goes into something because a lot of these people contribute their own time and they may even have other jobs that they do at the same time and they do extra work on it. And I think a lot of people, you know, you only have to see people going, oh, I have to drop support on this project now. I'm burnt out. And, you know, that's people literally grinding themselves to bits in order to get that project out there because they believe in something. I think it comes down to people wanting to be part of a thing that is successful. And Using the Apple example, like you buy into Apple, you're buying into this ecosystem where everybody has coiffured hair and buys coffee (laughs) all the time and loves this lovely metal machine and everything's great. And like, if you live in the Linux community, in the free software community, you're kind of looked upon as like the, the unwanted stepchild of software. And so to have somebody trying to rally people around an idea and a concept that might be a success is really exciting. You think, yeah, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to see this thing be a success so that me and my clan can be a success together. And I think that lends people to open their wallets a little bit too quickly and lose sight of the, of the realities. And it's, it, that's what it feels like to me. It's all about being successful with your friends and colleagues and people who, who think the same way as you. I think that makes sense. The question, though, is are they giving, is the money going to the wrong places? Because we want people to open their walls to support the projects that need the support. I think the best thing there would be look at the track record. You know, if you've been fooled what, more than twice, <laughs> maybe you should look at that person and go, or that project and go, yeah, maybe not. I think I'll just, you know, you've fooled me too many times at this point. I think people are starting to learn, right, that every time a new Linux-based phone comes along, then not everybody is jumping on the Kickstarter immediately. Uh, People are starting to realize that perhaps they should wait. And the sad thing is that because of all the people who have cried wolf over the years, there might be some genuinely good products out there that don't get the backing because too many people have taken advantage of other people. Well, there's been announcements recently that... I have immediately thought, oh, hang on, this this seems familiar, this looks dodgy, that have then turned out, I think, to be all right. And I've not covered them because I, I don't want to give publicity to stuff that I think is potentially a scam. And, you know, so I try and keep an eye on stuff and, and only really talk about it when it looks like it's going to deliver the goods. And it, it's made me cynical, I think. And, and that's not a good thing is it? Or maybe it is. Maybe we should all be waiting to see 
whether people deliver before we start hyping it up. Well, that's the traditional business model, right? You build a product, you develop it, you take it to market and you sell the finished thing. What people have sort of shifted to is just selling ideas. That's that's enough now to get a few million quid. So it seems to me that it's a lot easier to convince people that the thing that you're making is a good idea and have them buy it before it exists than it is to go through all of that tedious product development stuff. Why don't you just pretend it exists, get the money, fuck off to the Bahamas, instead of just building it. Yeah, but I still don't think that's Linux open source specific. I mean, just to pull one example, the synthesizer community has probably been just as ripped off by so many Kickstarter campaigns that never came to deliver anything. I can th- I can think of like three or four off the top of my head, and I've been waiting for a couple, three or four for the last two or three years. It's just the internet. <laughs> or groups that share a common dream. Yeah. Perhaps it is reflective of the open source community becoming large enough to warrant attacking or to warrant exploiting in this way. Like in the olden days, Lyle Lanley would go around selling you monorails. Yeah. And now you've got, you, you can do it on the internet and you, you've got access to a, a, a very large active community. They're easy to find because they tell you who they are and where they hang out because they want to attract people. I, it seems like they're kind of like the, the new, um, the new old age pensioners. <laughs> So what you're saying is that it's a good thing because it means that Linux and open source is actually becoming popular enough to be fucked with. Yeah, it's a really good idea if you're selling snake oil. Well, let us know what you think, dear listener. Show at latenightlinux.com. Send us an email. Let us know if you agree or disagree with us. But with that, we'd probably better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the news. Thank you for joining us, Chris. It's been great having you here. Um, if people want to find you, what, JupiterBroadcasting.com is the best? That'll do it. Check out LinuxUnplugged.com. That's a new podcast that's just kicked off, is it? It's brand new. <laughs> I got a crazy idea. I'm going to go with it and see what happens. Well, until next week then, I've been Joe. And I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. 